Savon Springer is the owner and founder of Native Assets. Any views expressed by Savon or his guests are their own thoughts and opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Native Assets or the guest's respective employer. Any guest appearance by representatives of Web3, NFT, crypto, or any other kind of organization does not constitute an endorsement by Native Assets or the guest's respective employer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be mistaken as financial advice. Always conduct your own due diligence and consult a qualified professional when considering any investments of any kind. Great day, great day. Welcome back to the show. Savon Springer, founder, managing partner of Native Assets, author of the Blockchain Blueprint. And today, man, man, I, man we, we would have had some bangers back to back to back to back. And I'm glad that today we're able to take it back to arts, take it back to culture. But also it involves business, it involves deep tech, a, a, a lot of things that are really integral and vital to building out this ecosystem in this space so that it doesn't just benefit the few, but actually can position people so that it actually has a, a notable impact on their ability to live out a more fulfilling life doing what it is they love to do. And I'm talking about art. I'm talking about creativity. I'm talking about music. I'm talking about film. I'm talking about video. We don't get into all of that because the brother that's sitting with us today that has carved out some time in his very busy schedule to sit down with us is building out a protocol that will really do a lot to change the game as far as how creators are able to monetize their work and, and really capture the value of what it is they're creating and do those things I just mentioned, live out a more fulfilling life doing what it is that they love. So without further ado, I'm very grateful, very happy to welcome Brandon Tory, founder of Formless of Share Protocol. Welcome to the show today, brother. How are you? Well, I'm feeling amazing, especially after that introduction. I really appreciate it. Uh, excited to get started. Thank you so much for having me. No, no, 100%, 100%, man. And, you know, I really, I recognize that everybody who's listening, they're coming in from a different point. So I'm like, okay, how do I really set the stage so they understand who's on the yeah. other end of this mic <laughs> and why they might want to perk those ears up and really pay attention. So if you could just out the gate, I know you've answered this probably a thousand times, explain to people uh, what Formless is and then yeah. what the share protocol is and what y'all are doing uh, with the pay for access and the micro payments. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I always like to take it back to story. It, it really goes back to my childhood. You know, formless was was a word I used before I ever started a company uh, to just describe this idea of not fitting into one box. You know, I grew up in a neighborhood that was pretty rough. I had very young parents and we had financial troubles. And, you know, hip hop was always a language that I was able to use to communicate and relate to other, uh, you know, people from the neighborhood. But I was super, super, super into technology and math and science and all that stuff from a very young age. And um, tech was what kind of was my stability uh, growing up, even in that environment. You know, with that being said, it was it was difficult to find an identity that fit into both of those pockets, you know, with our culture, uh, especially as black American men and, um, you know, in technology. Right. And so formless was that formless was the answer. It was, you know, I'm going to be everything. I'm going to be just who I am. Mm. Um, went on to get a degree in engineering. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, my career and all that, but essentially Formless then became the technology company that it is today. And we we came up with this, this vision statement um, about illuminating true human purpose through technology. And for me, what that really represents is, look, tech is moving really, really fast. It's going to continue to move really, really fast. We've seen a lot in AI and crypto and other spaces. So 100 years from now, what actually makes any product different than another? And I, and I think it really comes down to the human experience. Human consciousness, I think, is the most advanced 
thing that we'll ever see uh, on the planet. And so Facts. that's really Facts. what we meant to, uh, yeah, that's what we meant. That's what we meant by that. And so share, uh, which you touched on is a protocol that we designed that essentially takes all experiences. And, you know, today when we think of experiences, often we think of them as media on the internet, right? And uh, it turns them from these static files that we give to platforms and let them make all the rules. And instead it turns them into programs. And if if you can turn experiences into programs that self-govern, um, it actually changes the entire dynamics of the internet. And so that's what Share represents. Mm. Man, you, you you said a lot there. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I couldn't agree more to your point about the, the pace and the velocity of this change. You know, yeah. I... I'm a recently new father. My son's a little over 14 months. And Congrats. Until, Congratulations. I appreciate that. Um, until having him and seeing him, you know, I think about the future, but it's, it's, there was always this distance to it of, oh, one day that'll be here. You know, time progresses. You have a birthday come and go and these yeah. things that'll mark time across your life. But really looking at him and I have to ask myself, you know, how different are things now from when I was 20? 15, exactly. 10, 5, exactly. and the rate of change is only increasing. And I think at some moments, you know, that that, that makes me a bit uh, worried, a bit fearful of, you know, am I going to be equipped to teach him about some of the things that are coming along? But then the other side of that equation is like, well, there's all this time and there are all these possibilities. So a lot of the challenges that we grew up with, that our ancestors grew up with, a lot of those I'm optimistic we will find solutions for, and that's exactly. why things like what y'all are doing with Share is so cool, because I think one of the core binders, binding agents of any culture and society is the arts, yes. right? Like you have the, the the educators, the mathematicians, you got the astronomers, you got, you know, all these people in their, their positions, but it's really the art that often define what a culture is and how we perceive someone's culture. And so, you know, without really dancing around the subject, we look at where the state of music is today, and a lot of that is because of the culture of colored folks, of melanated people, uh, people right. who, you know, some of which were, were, were aboriginal to, to this land and others came from other lands that were brought over here forcefully. And yep. to still see a situation where a lot of the people in the music business, regardless of their own background, are, you know, for lack of a better term, getting shafted in these deals and these situations because their passion is so extreme for what it is that they do. They have these gifts. But so far, there's really only been a few ways to really get into the industry. And that's what uh, what really makes me hopeful about the, the tool that y'all are creating. So you have much more context around this than, than, than most people do because you actually were an artist as well. Um, yeah. So could you, we'll, we'll, we'll put a button in it, come back to that. We'll keep talking about the, matter of fact, fuck all that. We'll keep going. <laughs> could you speak to how you see, as far as a vision, the importance of micropayments in unwinding that situation the artists have found themselves in. Because there was an interview I watched of yours, and you were speaking about how when you were pursuing music, mind you, while you were an uh, engineer at Google, because we didn't get into that yet, but you were an engineer at Google, uh, which is, you know, there's a lot of engineers. There ain't a lot of engineers work at Google. Um, and you spoke about that experience of realizing, okay, I make this music, I put this music out. And what I may have to put into, you know, let alone the engineering, the production of the music itself, what I have to do on the marketing side just to hit, you know, 100,000, a million streams on Spotify, you're still upside down on that investment. Whether you're an independent artist or you're an artist who's in a deal at 360 and gets fronted that money that they have to pay back. So can you just speak to why 
that system is so broken and how microtransactions really can be the key to um, fixing that uh, in terms of making music a viable career for artists. Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, microtransactions, I like to think of as one of the elements of the how, right? It's like the mechanics underneath it. But I think what what might be more um, impactful for people to think about is why. And really, it's about value. It's about value systems. And you you mentioned something really important, which was as an artist, I would work really, really hard to get 100,000 streams, a million streams, right? Now, how did that make me feel? Well, a million streams to me felt like nothing. It felt like failure. You know what I mean? Why? Why why did that not feel valuable? Well, it's because the company or a group of companies that actually determines the value of that is not the group of people that's actually creating the experience. Mm. And so what I see the problem has kind of been over a long period of time is we create experiences, we create intellectual property, and then we actually ask someone, (laughs) excuse me, we, we ask someone else to determine the value. And that's very kind of unique to the media industry. I mean, in, in most other industries, if I create a t-shirt or anything else, you can say you don't like it, but this is what it costs. You know yeah. what I mean? And and because of that simple phenomenon, I can build a business around that, even if I only sell five t-shirts a year. Um, in media and in music, that just didn't exist. And I think there's a good reason for it. It just wasn't really feasible. It didn't make sense in the industry to have individual contracts with microtransactions associated with every piece of media on the internet. And that's why blockchain and Web3 is so fascinating and so exciting for me. It's, you know, a lot of people see it as speculative assets and and a a distributed database. I see it completely differently. I see it as the first time we have an ownerless programmatic world computer that can execute contracts at scale. And so you actually can have one contract for every piece of media on the internet. And that's what gives you the ability to have the supply and demand dynamics. Now, microtransactions are great because now we have these really easy ways to, you know, face ID, the money gets sent, it flows to all the collaborators, it's digital money. It's, we take it for granted, but that's a dream come true. If you think about when we grew up, we had to drive to the CD store, pay with cash. And then who knows when and how anybody got paid. We would burn CDs using Napster and then kind of run mixtapes and do hand to hand sales. And in the same lifetime, it's digital magic money with AI and face ID. And and that jump is incredible, right? And so, you know, that part, you know, the microtransaction piece, I think is it's how this is all going to work. But the why is value. We have to value ourselves. And if we're delegating that kind of value system to another party, um, therein lies the problem. So staying on the why, I like that. Be uh, I thought about the announcement that y'all made a few weeks back with the partnership y'all have with Dallas Austin. And I saw some photos. I want to say you were at the Grammys. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that was such a striking juxtaposition because generally speaking, the incumbent of an industry of a sector doesn't really, you know, try to assist their replacement in replacing (laughs) them, you know, and I know Dallas has had a long career um, and he's uh, in a different category of being in the industry because he's kind of, sure. you know, really an OG and, and, and has a different place in there now. But I'm curious if you can speak to what those dialogues and those conversations have been like, because there are smart people. There are um, conscious people at these labels, at these companies, and they realize that the system is broken. The system is flawed. Yeah. And they also recognize that the artists, most importantly, are recognizing this. And 
I'm grateful yeah. that in our lifetimes, you know, these artists have been made aware of what their contracts really say, what a 360 deal really means and the trade-offs there. So how have those conversations flown and how have yeah. you navigated that relationship? That's a great question. You know, I think, uh, I think starting out, it's, it's always useful to, to kind of use analogies. And so mm-hmm. as a business, you're thinking, essentially thinking this is war, right? Like it's the old versus the new, it's the new versus the old. But when you get into the details, you start realizing it's a lot more nuanced and a lot more complex than that. And everybody at the end of the day, these are people. And I would say the number one outcome that I've kind of learned through conversations is on the grand scale, most people really want to see this thing get fixed. Like no matter who you talk to, distribution companies, labels, artists, even, you know, technology companies like YouTube and Spotify, the people, you know, would love to see this get fixed. I think the reality is it's a non-trivial problem. Um, if, if you look at the history of music, I think if we if we walk back to that and then I'll circle back to like Dallas specifically. But historically, you know, originally music was kind of just this this language that we use to communicate subjective experience between each other. And it was over the air. And so that made it pretty valuable because you just you had to be with the musician and hear it. I mean, that makes it like really one of the most valuable things. Then you record it, right? And so now we have this medium, whether it's the tape cassette or the CD, and that's your distribution. You have physical distribution of these items, and that still is pretty valuable. And then you have, um, you know, what comes along to be piracy. So now people see that they can replicate these bits and put them on the internet, and that completely devalues the entire thing. Well, how do you solve that? Spotify comes along and says, okay, you know what? We have a trick. We're going to make it so easy to pay for music that it just doesn't make sense to steal it. Mm-hmm. That's not <laughs> a bad answer, right? Like they, they did it. That, that's not a bad answer. That actually solved a lot, right? And I think there's people in the music community today that would say streaming was great for them, right? It's mm-hmm. not great for everybody. For some music, musicians, it was great. Okay, and then, and then what happens from there? Well, now you have this completely commoditized experience where the transaction and the signal of value is no longer between the artist and the listener. It's between the listener and the platform, and they administer the relationship, and then the artist is kind of just responsible for pumping out as much of this commodity mm-hmm. as, as humanly possible, and that drives the price down. That's where we are today. So it's not that there weren't good intentions. It's just that as a natural optimization of that system, that leads to where we are. And so the question is, okay, how do we solve that? And the reality is with labels, with big companies, with all this stuff, I just don't think that they're necessarily equipped to solve it because you have to be very agile and nimble and be willing to let go of some things to be able to do it. And I experienced this at Google. You know, at Google, arguably, we had the most resources on the planet, um, but OpenAI beat us to the large language model, uh, which is ChatGPT, which we see today. And it's because it's not that easy to move a big company. It's just not. Mm-hmm. There's bureaucracy, there's decision-making stuff. And so I think that's the same thing that's happening in the music industry. Until someone says, I'm just not afraid I'm going to do it a new way, I don't think you're going to see the new way happen. And that typically happens from the smaller players who don't have as much risk. And so um, that's what I see. So typically when we talk to these companies or people that are in the, in the industry, it's actually about um, recognizing that they are humans and understanding what their motives are and then trying to decrease the amount of fear. Uh, like it's not really we're here to burn down the music industry. It's going to be a new thing, right? It's much more like, look, this is the new way and we value the old. We understand why you did it this way, right? Here's the door. Here's the path. It's going to go this way. You should know that. Right? <laughs> it's your decision, right? But like, it's going to go this way. This is just the way that technology is evolving. And so that's what it's been like. And so then you have people like Dallas who just instantly gets it. 
And I think it's because of the experience he's been through every uh, every single part of that journey that I just mm-hmm. discussed from, you know, CDs to uh, mixtapes to streaming and piracy and everything else. He's seen it all. So when he saw Cher, I didn't have to tell him. He just immediately got it. He's like, OK, yeah, this is it. This is how it's supposed to go. Um, I think it's been it's actually been a lot easier with creatives. You know, anyone who's artistic, who's, who's been in the space in that capacity, has been pretty easy. The harder part is is the technology and the business side, because sometimes these visions, which are very, very natural to understand from a creative standpoint, it's a little bit harder to see, well, how are we going to squeak out profitability and how are we going to squeak out some of these things that matter from a business perspective? So that that's pretty much what I've seen. OK, that makes a ton of sense. And to your point. Almost no matter the industry, that inertia of heading in a direction when you have a titanic yeah. <laughs> you know, entity, you try to jerk, jerk that joint to the side and it's like, look, we'll capsize if we turn too quick. <laughs> and, you yeah. know, one thing is you were mentioning how, you know, they, they acknowledging that it made sense and how Spotify, you know, kind of in one fell swoop. You know, they built on what iTunes did and they said, oh, we can take this a step further and really put this piracy thing to bed. But still that question of how do we remain profitable? How do we keep kind of our moat about this industry? Because a lot of times that that's what it's about. And and I think um, an interesting development that we've been seeing more lately, even this year, are prominent artists selling the future value or projected value of their works by, you know, offloading the rights to their catalog to these other entities. And that has been fascinating to me because, you know, a lot of these publishers, a lot of these labels, a lot of these companies that's where a lot of their value comes from. Yeah, it's new artists that come up, but it's also having the rights to people who you know every Christmas, God, dog, you're going to hear some Mariah Carey, you know, and, Absolutely. and, and yep. making their, their, their profits in bulk. But one thing, when I look at a platform like Share and the efficiency that's there, right? Like I've, you know, we, we went back and forth on Twitter a little bit, you know, some months back. And I hope you don't mind. I was being kind of funny. You know, I didn't know you personally. I was like, I don't know the energy. I forget the question. Oh, no, I, love I, love, I love the conversation but, on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I brought a little bit of humor to it. And, um, I was like, man, I was just kind of thinking about my own rollout of music in this space. And so before this interview, I had to make sure I got it done. I got my first track up on share and I get oh, to nice. the end. Thank you. And it, thank you. And it didn't cost <laughs> me anything, you know? And, and so, Obviously, there are a lot of configurations one can go through, which I appreciate, and the, the, the flow is really dope. I want to get into that. But I think about even just some of the administrative overhead that these entities would save. You know, yeah. how inefficient is it for, 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 for ASCAP or these other publishers to have to pay to mail a check to somebody across the country when the royalty payout is less than that, what that whole process cost them? Exactly. And it's exactly. a lot of artists that they got to do that for. It ain't, it's, it's very few Drakes and Ariana Grandes in the world. Exactly. And so have you seen, and we don't have to stay on this point for too long, but have you seen some traction with the folks at the, the labels when you kind of show them, like even just from that very, call it, boring side of things, like, look, yeah. this is just cost savings, you yeah. know, if nothing yeah. else. You can still take your split from these yeah. artists. You can still do a 360 with Share if you need to. Exactly. Like. You still can. Thank you for saying, yeah, you get it. You get it 100%. I mean, actually, yes, that that um, especially with with the companies that are behind the scenes, like royalty administration, distribution companies, they experience the pain of exactly what you just said. Like, I have to administer these royalty payouts in perpetuity for every single artist that's ever distributed (laughs) on my platform. Right. That's not easy. That's a lot of work. And again, that's because you have centralization at the policy layer of the contracts and the royalty distribution associated with every piece of media on the internet. But if every piece of media on the internet was its own program that managed its own state, 
it's a much more futuristic way of doing things. It's almost like cellular, like our, our bodies, mm-hmm. you know, each cell is able to operate itself autonomously. And that's what makes the whole thing work. And uh, that's the same way I see media going in the future. And it, and it is, it is a lot more efficient. And there's, there's things that we can do to make it even more efficient. You know, even the way that we're, we're attacking royalty splits now through microtransactions, you know, gas fees on blockchains are still, are still a thing and those cost money. And so there's innovations that we've done to make sure that even at microtransaction scale, we can distribute royalties to an unlimited number of parties. Um, and it still makes economic sense. And that's, that's a huge unlock to what share enables. And I think one of the most exciting things about this technology is it means you can actually share the upside of media with your own community. Hmm. So like right now, you typically, um, like I'll give you an example, is 508 is an artist that just dropped with us today. And on his uh, Instagram, he just announced an album on share where he's going to do a 20% split with any of his supporters that want to join the smart contract. Now, what does that mean? That means you're, you're taking music from what was a single player game and saying it's multiplayer. Now you're actually in the game with me and my successes are your successes. And I don't think we've ever seen that before. It's really peer to peer distribution where the same thing you'd be asking a, you know, uh, company to do on your behalf. You're just saying, you know what? I'm just going to do this with the people that actually care about it. And now every time they talk about it or they cheer for me or root for me, um, they're incentivized to be a part of that. Right. And I think that's really what we mean by decentralized and peer to peer distribution, um, and experiences and media as a program on the internet to share. That gets exactly to the question that I imagine or is in a lot of people's minds of why, aside from the artist, right? Why yeah. would a fan want to why participate would the consumer in this? Side? Exactly, exactly. Because you know that makes me think about the sort of model. And I don't know if, if he's going to go about it exactly this way, but where somebody can set up a DAO, you know, have a whole yeah. other thing where it's like when well, you buy this NFT, you're in the DAO now, yeah. and then you put that DAO's address in the smart yeah. contract, their treasury, exactly. and now. You see what I'm saying? Exactly. So it's like you, you can't. So, so, okay. So I was skeptical of, of the DAO thing originally. I'm not mm-hmm. anymore, but I was skeptical of it because for me, as an artist, I don't really fully buy into the idea of you participating in the speculation of future value associated mm-hmm. with me as an artist for no other reason. I still think you need a grounding layer of value. And so what I'm excited about is the experience itself being the thing that backs the whole chain or being the thing that backs the whole value chain. So once you kind of jump over the hop of recognizing that experiences themselves are valuable, not just the ownership of the asset associated with the experience, but the experience itself. So I'm willing to pay one penny microtransaction to hear the new Kanye West album, whatever it is. If that is true, then you then you can actually build up these these ideas of artist styles and other things because you have um, you have some value that's flowing to all the participants independent of speculation. And so that's the way I see it now. So with is five away, it doesn't matter how many transactions he does. It doesn't matter how much money's generated. If he even does one, he's generated value for that 20% community. And now they can join as many smart contracts as they want. And now you can build up things like artist dials and tokens and other things around that. So I really see share as the first building block that gives us experiential value transfer um, on decentralized technology. Mm. Maybe this is um, a little, no, it's not out of left field. I look at some of the other platforms that are showing themselves to be kind of stacks. And um, yeah. one of them that comes to mind is Decent. I think they've done a mm-hmm. phenomenal mm-hmm. job of the, the onboarding flow to show people, that, you know, the, the 
bonding curves when you release it so the pricing is dynamic or the, the soft staking yep. mechanisms. How are conversations going to implement share directly into that? Because to me, that's just like a no-brainer. I don't know if it's a strategic <laughs> thing or like, nah, yeah. you know, we got some other plans on that. But how yeah. are you thinking about the interoperability as it relates to other uh, protocols and platforms that are being built out? It's, 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 hard. it's like hugely, hugely important. To me, that's the end game. The end game is really not to build this new siloed app. That was never the goal, right? The goal was actually that in the end, the consumer still uses YouTube. The consumer yeah. still uses Spotify. They don't even know that on the backside it's, it's decent, it's uh, share, it's these things that are interoperating with each other to make this possible, right? That's the vision. Now, the reality on the business side is it takes time to make those integrations possible because you have to justify economic viability. So I think for us, it's been a roadmap to get there. And, you know, I'm sure you've seen the news with, with A16Z. We're now in this mm -hmm. cohort. And so we're meeting a lot more companies and things like that. And so that's becoming more of a reality. But I think, you know, just in terms of the journey, a lot of times it takes a couple of steps, right? You actually have to build the product. You actually have to get it uh, battle tested and security audited and everything else and then go out and, and prove the economics of it. And that's what makes people interested. So I think, you know, for me, that is the that is the vision. That is the goal, you know, complete interoperability. And um, yeah, I think, as you said, like it is, it is kind of a strategic thing now about how to invest the right resources uh, to make that that happen as fast as possible. Amazing. I'm definitely going to yeah. be following along on that because I think that as you know, what 2022 was really good for, you know, if you take all of the noise or the actual price action and put it to the side is I was, you know, in 2021, I didn't pay much attention to what was happening in the music side of things yeah. that were going on. But in 2022, there seemed to be a lot of people really experimenting and demonstrating different playbooks of sorts <laughs> about how they could really take their career. And obviously, you can't just pretend like Spotify and the traditional platforms don't exist because they do. And you'd probably yep. be hurting yourself if you try to completely circumvent them. But really major strides in saying, hey, we're proving out the viability of this platform. And you can go exactly. over there and you can try to do 10 million streams. You can come over here and sell you about 100 NFTs and, <laughs> you know, which one do you think is a little more viable? So yeah. um, with that, when you are speaking with artists, because you, you know, the rest of your team, Jason, Kat, everybody is still very close and, and accessible from the community. Yeah. What have you seen as far as most of these artists or not even most of them, but some different strategies they're taking as far as, OK, boom, yeah. I will drop uh on share and then i'll release this stuff on spotify a month later you know a week yeah. later so have you just how are you seeing that kind of being played out and people experimenting yeah the dominant strategy i've seen which um which is really really dope and which i i i didn't think of this i just kind of observed it is this multi-hop user journey with music where you know, when I was putting out music kind of full time and I, I'm still an artist, but I don't put it out as often because I've been building formless. But it was we, we put so much emphasis on release day. It was mm -hmm. like you just want to build up this massive thing in the first week and do as good as you can through release day. And now it's, it's like, especially Web3, it's, it's almost like that's the that's the beginning. I mean, and maybe that maybe it always was. But in Web3, especially, it's like that's really just the beginning. And then you're building up experiences as you go over time to give people additional um, value adds, you know, experiential value adds. And so, you know, I think TK, the legend is, a, TK is a really good example of this. He dropped his album, Eternal Garden on Share. Mm -hmm. It was already an NFT on sound. He sold out, you know, on that platform. Then he took the NFT, used it as a verification on Share. So anybody can listen to it if they do a microtransaction or if they already own the, 
the um, NFT that that he sold on Sound XYZ, and then he has you know a follow up to that, which you know maybe it involves. Uh, I won't I won't blow the surprise. Yeah, maybe yeah. it involves some other special experience that then builds on top of that piece. And what you see is it's almost like every technology that exists in the industry is waiting for their chance to showcase how this experience mm-hmm. can be shown through that lens. And now you have this multi-hop user journey uh, with music where the, the experience actually has a ton of value. And again, it goes back to, you have all these tech companies, but without Eternal Garden, without that song, without that album, it doesn't matter. It doesn't light up. It only lights up because of the creator. And so I, I really think the creators are the ones that are so much more valuable now than the actual technology. And then you basically create something beautiful and you take it through this journey of different things that can be done with it based on the tech. And that's the strategy that I've really been seeing. And so you're getting new audience members along the way of this journey, depending on who you partner with to showcase mm-hmm. your creativity through all these new technologies that exist. I think it's it's also forcing artists to be more intentional about yeah. how they're doing their own development, because in the traditional leg, the traditional system of music, as you said, you try to build up to that release date. You figure, oh, these are going to be a couple of handful of singles. You maybe shoot a couple of music videos if your budget yeah. allows for it. And then it's about merch and shows, you know, through yeah. touring. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it kind of creates this conveyor belt. And I think that in some ways, the actual authenticity or the individuality of that artist can kind of get lost in that system, right. the systemization that the label or the, you know, the, the, the execs have just seen like, no, 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 no. Based on these metrics, this is where you are. We're going to do this. We got this many videos for you. Boom, 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 yeah. boom, bap. And your tour will be this many dates. Uh, boom, 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 boom. And then you'll take home 5%, you know, to whatever yeah. it might yeah. be. And yeah. uh, ultimately, I'm pretty confident that this process is going to make artists better at their art because yeah. now as opposed to just saying, oh, I'm just, the, you know, focused on the, the production. I'm just focused on the writing or the singing they're really getting more involved in the whole aspect of that process. And that, that, that really can do nothing but be a net positive for artistry and creativity. And so uh, I just admire that kind of feedback loop between the technology and the artistry in and of itself. And as you started this conversation out with really fortifying those human experiences, that conscious experience, um, because I think that's ultimately going to be one of the ways that we offset all of what AI is going to be able to do because exactly. AI is going to make some crazy shit. <laughs> it's yeah. going to make some bangers, <laughs> you yeah. know? Um, but I'm not fully convinced that it will really be able to cross that chasm or how long it's going to take to cross that chasm of really having that feel that humans do and that intention and those kind of subconscious yeah. um, reasons and justifications for things. So I really dig that. Now, can we talk for a moment about the from your mind right now, and I understand that at a grand level, um, what share is intended to be really in the background powering all of this. But in the short to medium term, do you think that um, one of shares big value adds is simply the ability for artists to make a living from their music? Because not every artist is going to go and, you know, do these numbers where they're yeah. Yeah. doing something wild and extreme. But this does seem like a fundamental shift. And artists and Web3 in general being able to realistically, you know, cover their rent, cover their food, and so they can focus on their art. How do you see share yeah. uh, in that journey at this point in time? I think at this point in time, you know, to be honest with you, if I'm talking to artists, it's still an exploration, right? I would never uh, make a commitment to an artist that say, look, if you exclusively release on share, now you'll be able to sustain uh, economically, right? I think it's too early to say that. 
But that definitely is the outcome that we see here. And I think it, it does depend on the artist. Yeah. So if you if you look at the case studies and like the numbers we've seen through releases, it's very clear that if you if you do have a fan base or not, I don't like to use the word fan, but if you have like an audience of a certain size, right? Because I really think of it as communities and I think people are starting to participate more. And so, you know, nothing against the word fan, but I, I try to just, you know, involve people um, at the supporter level. But if you have enough supporters, then, yeah, you can do peer to peer distribution and you can make enough money, you know, to be good on every drop. Uh, now, if you're an artist who maybe hasn't reached that point yet, there are different ways to leverage the technology to get to that point. And that's where we think it's important to be able to use some of these smart contract features like community participation in the upside. So it, it really comes down to what strategy you decide to use. And, and I, you know, we've seen artists who I think could command very high prices for an album. I could drop it, not me, but I'm saying there's albums that there's artists that would say, yeah, I'm gonna drop my album for seven hundred dollars. It's only gonna come out like once every two years, but it's gonna be the best music ever, right? And mm -hmm. it depends on the artist. There's other artists who, you know, will continue to put music out for free, right? That's just what they believe. And then there's some artists who I think will find ways to integrate their community into the release and kind of gamify it and make it much more about an us thing versus a my journey as an as an artist thing. And so at this point, I, again, I think it's it's a little bit exploratory. Um, but from an economics perspective, you can make a lot more money through peer-to-peer -peer distribution with the same audience size um, than you would through traditional centralized distribution. I appreciate your honesty in that answer, brother, um, yeah. about where people are at this moment, where Sherry is at this moment, um, because I think I, I would agree that from what I have seen, it is still, you know, just like there's a select group of people in the mainstream music, there's a select yeah. cohort of artists <laughs> in Web3 yeah. that you hear about, you see. Uh, and I think part of it is definitely a testament to their craft and how long they've been honing their craft. They didn't just like start in this yeah. space. Um, but when I saw TK tap in with what y'all were building, I felt like that was a moment, you know, and I'm not even yeah. super familiar with his music. I'm more familiar with him and the kind of energy yeah. around him. Uh, yeah. But when I saw that, I was like, hell yeah, you know what I mean? Just yeah. like another traction <laughs> point to just show. I look at it uh, in a parallels, kind of like when Yuga went ahead and did their mint on Ordinals, on Bitcoin. As soon as yeah. I saw that, I'm like, either D-Gods or, you know, Doodles or one of these other blue chips is going to have to follow next because now there's additional right. validity. There's a, one more case study that's too exactly. big to ignore. And so now exactly. people who've been, you know, maybe on the sidelines, they got, ah, let me spend a weekend and really tap in and learn more about this. So, yeah, really, I mean, uh, it, it did. In our last Twitter space, it really, it really became clear because we, you know, we were doing Twitter spaces a lot last year, but it was before we had done any releases, right? We were, you know, polishing the technology and everything. And then we had the space where TK was there and, and Eternal Garden was already on share. And immediately people that have been joining our spaces just listening in, they were like, I get it now. I, I finally understand what you're saying. And I've been talking for a year. <laughs> like, I finally get it because I see it. So a lot of times it's show, you know, not tell. No, no, I get that. I get that 100%. Um, so let's go ahead. And um, I know we only have so much time left and I don't want to uh, shortchange this part of it. Formless as a company is also focusing on teaching the next generation, right? Mm -hmm. With these the, this, these skills and, and coding and technology. I want to say y'all have a book as well, yeah. like an interactive mm -hmm. course. Can you just speak to what y'all are doing on that front to really, you know, get, because it's going to yeah. be, you know, our children, our project, they're the ones who are going to build the future that we're yeah. living in. So can you speak to that and why that is important for you to be doing that when you could just be focusing exclusively on share? Yeah, thank you, man. I'm glad you brought that up. So, um, we we created a book called Little Hackers, and it's 
it's really designed to inspire and educate um, a future generation of the youth to be able to participate in technology. And so we, we basically designed it to teach kids Python uh, from age six and up. Really, it just came from my, my own personal commitment. You know, I'm a father. My son is 10 now. When we started the book, he was uh, he was obviously a little bit younger, but I just wanted to get him into technology. And I thought, you know what? A lot of the books I see, first of all, they're not really representative of us. It's, it's very hard to find books that you actually see us in as youth uh, learning these things. And two, I felt that they were a little bit too complicated in terms of the actual um, the overhead that was required for parents to administer the the curriculum within the book. And so, for me, it was like, okay, how do we how do we create an easier entry point? It's not a it's not a silver bullet. It doesn't solve everything, but it, but an easier entry point would be: Can I learn something about coding just through reading, without actually having to go through the process of installing all this software and learning like syntax and that stuff? And really, when we did our studies and our focus groups, we realized. You can, right? You you can actually present word problems that also have some code and where, you know, you can ask kids to kind of predict what the outcomes of the code would be or reverse engineer what, what code may be written in the book. And so that's what Little Hackers uh, was designed to do. Uh, in terms of, you know, with Share, I think it's a good question. We completed Little Hackers before we really started the development of Share. So Little Hackers came out while I was still a full-time engineer at Google. And while I was, you know, kind of developing formless in terms of the foundation and the team and getting ready to make that decision to leave Google. Um, and coincidentally, or fortunately, Little Hackers was done um, at that time. And so we fulfilled the orders and we have those available. And we really see it as a community, you know, development and investment initiative. You know what I mean? We we love to ship them out to teachers and ed educators. I actually spoke at LAUSD last year. I gave the keynote at one of their coding conferences and uh, they purchased a bulk order of the Little Hackers books. And so, you know, to me, it's just, What's the point of this if we're not investing in the next generation? You know, I think that that's that's really just a, one of my passions, and and if we can do it as a, as part of our community development at Formless, then uh, that's even doper. So that that's really what that's about. Okay, I love that. I love that. Yeah. Coding is something that you know uh, I appreciate it so much. I I was in a class when I was in uh, college. I was in there up until the point they wanted us to do Minesweeper. And I was like, I'm yeah. out, I'm out. <laughs> and uh, I wouldn't say it's because it was too difficult, but at that time, I definitely was not committed to putting the time in required yeah. to figure out the syntax and all of that. Because right, logic right. always made more sense to me of like, okay, if then, then boom, boom, boom. And you know how the, yeah. those sort of trees will break out, but actually how you had to put it in and speak to it and find where the syntax was breaking was a very frustrating process for me. Um, on that point, what would you say are some of the, the, the biggest learnings you had or, or, or people who are interested in coding, whether they're younger or they're, you know, the audience uh, around our age, yeah. what advice would you give to them if they do want to get involved in coding? Should they still go about it in the way that maybe you did? Should they lean on some of these tools like ChatGPT to mm -hmm. help teach them some of these problems? How can they maybe get a leg up and, and get into coding? Yeah, I wrote an article about this on my website, brandatory.com. It's called Why Learning to Code is the Wrong Goal. Mm. And um, <laughs> Hell yeah. yeah, so basically, like trying to learn the code will almost always result in the experience you had, which was mm. the time investment it takes to learn the syntax isn't worth the outcome that I'm getting here. And if your goal is to learn the code, I'm, I'm pretty sure for a lot of people, even people who would otherwise be excellent engineers, it's just not enjoyable enough to put that 10, 20, 30,000 hours in that a lot of us have done. 
So what you really want is not to learn to code. You want to learn to solve some problem that happens to require coding. Mm. Right. And if you do that, then yeah, you're going to use ChatGPT. You're going to use Solidity. You're going to use pot. You're going to use whatever because you want to solve this problem that you actually care about. That's the right goal. And, you know, I think especially within our culture, we put coding on this pedestal almost because, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily have a lot of people in our families who necessarily have those careers. But the reality is like coding is like the bare minimum, like in terms of being able to enter the space and have the conversation and contribute to technology. Most senior engineers don't even code. You know, they don't spend that much time coding. Mm. They're mainly doing what you're doing back there on your whiteboard. They're designing things. They're, they're connecting mm. the dots. And then they're delegating and designing areas of work that other people, maybe chat GPT, will actually go and code, right? And so that's the main thing. I think the framework of what we're actually trying to achieve is a little bit misguided. It's not to go and learn to code for coding's sake. It's choose a problem worth solving. And that, that problem will probably require coding. And because you're passionate about solving the problem, that's what's going to make you put the time in. And that was always it for me. You know, I learned to code because I wanted to be a hacker. I, I was really, really into the world I saw in the movies, the freedom, the the creativity, just that was like, I have to learn this. And then what happens is you join chat rooms, you're trying to learn how to be a hacker. They say, if you don't know how to code, you got to leave the room. I said, all right, I got to learn how to code then. All right, I'm going to learn C++. I'm going to learn assembly. I'm gonna, I got to get, you know what I mean? So that's really what it was for me. And that's what drove me to become absolutely obsessed uh, with code uh, and everything that I've been able to do in my career. Would you say a lot of that perspective was informed by your time at Google? Um, Google, what Google did was it shows you the level. So I was already very, very passionate about coding. I was already really good. But um, when you when you join Google, especially the team I was on was the research team, research and machine intelligence. And that was all MIT coders. They're just like you. So now things that you thought only you could do, you realize it's not just you. <laughs> and so it's, it's like, okay, now, now I got to get even better. That's what that, that's what that really taught me. But I already had the drive and the passion for technology since I was very young, just since I was a kid. Mm. What, if anything, did you have to unlearn from your time at Google? So do you mean, did I have to learn to be successful at Google or did I have to unlearn from Google to be successful as a founder? There you go. The second one. The founder one? Yep. Okay, that's a good one. That's a dope question. So at Google, um, the, the incentives are aligned a little bit differently. At Google, what you're trying to do is find difficult problems where you can tell a story of impact to justify a level up from an engineering perspective. So you're literally trying to look like you're doing something difficult, right? You're, that's your goal. Your goal is, I want people to know how difficult this was. That's my metric of success, right? I'm going to justify impact, leadership, difficulty, right? And as an engineer at Google, that typically means you are very deep on technical problems and you're trying to reduce chaos in systems and you're trying to you know, justify that, look, I know you guys are good engineers, but I'm, you know, I'm me, right? Yeah. Um, when you become a founder, none of that matters. <laughs> That's the crazy <laughs> Become a founder, like, you still do that, but you're not reporting to some committee to try to tell them how difficult it was, and this mm -hmm. is why I'm a great engineer. 
There's literally nobody on the other side that cares. It's just the market. And if the market says whatever you did was worthless, then it was worthless. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the that's the mind, that's the brain switch as the founder. Uh, so as the founder, you start realizing like, yo, it doesn't, that's not how impact is measured here. So yeah, I could spend, you know, the next 80 hours trying to solve some deep tech problem. And it might be fun, but I'm not going to actually get any additional points that I should probably spend more time designing that work and making sure I find the right people who can help me to do that faster to actually achieve the goal. And the one thing I did keep from Google that's really, really important is you should measure impact by the complexity of the problem, not the complexity of the solution. Mm. In other words, if you come out of this and the entire music industry is, you know how complex it is with royalties and media and film and licensing and rights and all, and you come out of this and you just say, you know what? Just let the artist set the price. That's too simple. That can't be it. Right? That's really but actually, like, what if that's it, right? And it's like, now that sounds simple, but of course that takes smart contracts, that takes mm -hmm. all these different pieces. But it's it's not about coming up with some complicated solution. It's about recognizing that the problem is complex, but the solution might be very elegant, very simple. And so that's something that I took from Google that I thought was really good. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of insight. And I think that now when I look at Google products or I just look at the number of people they have or the sort of projects that they focus their time on, that context is really helpful to think about it from that lens um, yeah. because I've seen it from outside looking in, but I never thought about it from how you described it of how competitive and it almost being like, you know, when, uh, when, when the Lakers had Kobe in his prime and then you get another yeah. guy who was the number one, the Kobe <laughs> on his team. And now you kind of just like, we're on the same team, but it's slick. Fuck you. You know, yeah. uh, even though we work it toward the same goal, right. but um, it's, it's, it's that that's definitely fascinating. And, it, the last part you said about the solutions being simple or needing to be elegant, I can't remember exactly who it was, but it was somebody, maybe it was Johnny Ive or, um, or Steve Jobs, when he made the point yeah. about, you know, elegance and simplicity from a design standpoint. And yeah. I think that that's been really fundamental to their success is that at the end, you know, result or whatever it is they do, they try to make it look so easy and so seamless, even though I, I imagine they're taking a very Google uh, approach in terms of the intensity that goes into there. solving a lot of these things. Um, so, man, this has been a beautiful conversation. We took it yeah, in a lot man. of different places. Thank you again so much for making the time. Uh, I guess before we get out of here, how has your experience been in the accelerator? You're still through it, oh, uh, yeah. the A16Z yeah. school or startup school. Uh, what have you learned thus far? And yeah, and, yeah just, just catch us up on how that's going before we get out of here. Man, it's, it's been a dream come true. You know, I, I never like to, uh, I never like to get my hopes up about anything. You know, I've been pretty grounded my whole life, but, uh, this is one of those things where it's better than I thought it would be. <laughs> it's just like, man, this is crazy. First week you get there, you meet 51 other founders who are, you know, trying to achieve similar things to what you're trying to achieve. You're speaking the same language. Meet Chris Dixon on the first day, you know, shake his hand, get to talk to him for the whole day about, my theory about the space of Web3, you get to hear his thoughts. Brian Armstrong comes from Coinbase in person. Um, MC from Uniswap. Uh, Tim Roughgarden, head of research at A16Z Crypto. These people are all accessible to us all day. <laughs> and we're just there, you know, com communing and, um, and learning and sharing ideas and demonstrating what we're working on. And it feels like what I think I missed out on when my mother said, I should have went to MIT and I said, no, nah, I don't want to do that. 
And now, you know, I see kind of what she was trying to say. You know, at that time in my youth, I really thought that technology was something to be ashamed of. I didn't, I thought it was a nerdy thing. I didn't really even talk about it with my friends. And, and um, you know, my mother spoke life into me. And now now I have this opportunity and it just feels like it's another chance. And it's, it's just beautiful to be able to be around all these people and feel like we're we're really building the future of the Internet. Man, that's a beautiful note to end off of. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for making the time today, Brandon. Uh, before we get out of here, just let the people know the best way that they can tap in with Share, Formless, and support what y'all are doing. Yeah, uh, Brandon Tory on any social platform and formless.xyz has all our information. So uh, really grateful for anybody who tries out the technology and, uh, you know, let's do this together. I think we're at a special time in history right now. I couldn't agree more. And uh, definitely know that the share is going to be an integral part of the rollout of my music throughout the rest of this year and, and going forward. So Let's I go. appreciate everything that y'all are doing, man, and uh, look forward to doing this again, brother. I say, Vaughn, thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm.